Some of my family members back in my grandparents' generation lived in Texas in the 1930s during the Dust Bowl. And they, they experienced that because they lived on ranches. And when I was really young, one of my early memories of a family trip, we were back in Texas and with some of our distant relatives who knew where one of the old places was that was abandoned. That one of my distant family members had abandoned and they, they said, would you like to see it? And of course we said yes. And so they took us to this place and we saw the house where people had lived and we saw the old frames of the beds with the springs still there and, and we saw broken pieces of china that were still left on the floor where they had apparently been dropped as people were leaving. It had been untouched for years and years with nothing but dust and rattlesnakes, no life left. And it's interesting, isn't it, how we have this uh, sense of an allure to these things that have been abandoned, like ghost towns or the Titanic, shipwrecks, these old structures that used to house life, used to house community, which have become abandoned and empty shells where they house nothing anymore. It makes me think of Ezekiel in the dry bones. When Ezekiel's looking out at the valley and he sees where a great people used to be, but no longer is there life in those bodies. And the bodies, in fact, are nothing but dusty, white, dry bones until the breath of God is returned and they come alive again before Ezekiel's eyes in his vision. It's a little bit like when the first human being was being formed in the beginning of Genesis, when God creates humankind out of the dust and that first human being who is made of dirt has no life until God breathes God's breath into that shell. And it becomes no longer just a shell, or as Paul says in 2 Corinthians, just an earthly tent, but it becomes a living being. Because as human beings, that's what we are. We are not just body. We are body and spirit. We are embodied beings, or spiritual beings, with these bodies that have been blessed with the gift of life through the gift of the spirit, the breath of God. And in Jesus' day, you may have noticed in this very striking gospel reading, there was just an assumption that there were many different spirits that were inhabiting the bodies of people. Uh, there were good spirits and there were bad spirits. I think in our era, maybe we talk about energy and you've experienced that certain people have certain energies and communities and institutions will have certain energies that will um, animate those communities and institutions? Well, in Jesus' day, it was understood kind of like how Wi-Fi or cellular data is understood, that there were spiritual forces that were just traveling through the air. And one of the things that made Jesus become so famous so quickly was his skill, his ability to cast the bad spirits out of people. That first line in the gospel, we hear about how the crowds were so, so thick that Jesus and his disciples couldn't even eat. So it's becoming a problem. But then we have this curious thing that people maybe like to read over and, and kind of not notice, but it's disturbing actually that 
Um, the people are saying, beginning to say that Jesus must be animated himself by one of these bad spirits. And in fact, not only that, but that he has the prince of demons, Beelzebul. You heard that, that line that was, that was said about him. And here's the really disturbing part, that his mother and his brothers and sisters agree that there's a problem and they come to try to restrain him. Now Mark does an interesting thing, the way he tells stories, he sandwiches things. He starts with one topic and then he goes into a different teaching and then comes back to it. So we begin with the family and then we go into this teaching where Jesus responds and he says, no, in fact, I do not have an evil spirit. That's not how I'm casting out spirits. And in fact, if the evil spiritual world were divided amongst itself, it would be a house divided, could not stand. This famous quote that uh, Abraham Lincoln gave a whole speech on in 1852. And then he says, the one thing that you cannot do, you can blaspheme and be forgiven unless you blaspheme against the Holy Spirit. And I ask myself, why is that the thing that is different? And my belief is that what it means is if you are blaspheming against the Holy Spirit, if you see the Spirit of God and you call it the spirit of demons, you are so closed, you will never be able to receive that forgiveness and be being made right. You've closed that door. And then he says a thing that can easily be um, confusing where he talks about if a robber comes to a house and wants to plunder the house and it's the house of a strong man, he won't have a chance unless he uh, ties up the strong man and then he can do it. Well, what he's saying is Jesus is that person coming to rid the house of certain things and he has the power to subdue even the strong spirits. That's what that means. But then he comes back and he brings it to the family. Where the family comes back onto the scene, in fact. And they're continuing in their effort to subdue Jesus. And, and the disciples say, well, look, your family is here. And they are taking this assumption of insiders and outsiders. Of course, the family are the ultimate insiders. They are his family unit but he opens it up. Without really casting them down, he says, in fact, anybody who does the will of God is my brother, my sister, my mother. We are animated by one Holy Spirit. There is one Spirit. In our baptism, uh, the beginning of every one of our baptism services, we start by saying there is one Spirit, one faith, one baptism. One calling. We are elevated to that level of family when we recognize that what is inside of us, what has been blessing us our whole lives, giving us life and breath, is that spirit of God, which also gives us the power to do the will of God when we allow it to. Last month, I was very fortunate to get to spend a week with a woman named Catherine Meeks. Some of you I know have heard about her. Dr. Catherine Meeks is the head of the Absalom Jones Center for Racial Healing, which is part of the Episcopal Diocese of Atlanta. And it was really timely to get to do this just before the one-year anniversary of all that took place here when we became the, at the very center of an epicenter for calling for racial reconciliation. Or, or racial justice and healing. A reckoning is the word that we've been seeing in the press um, 
one that is continuing. And to be around Catherine Meeks is an infectious thing. She's one of these people who is so full of the Spirit of God. And she has this quality like a, a grandmother who um, has wit and wisdom. And also, you know, she's always going to tell you the truth, including hard truths. And when she talks about this work of racial healing, she talks about it in a way where it's not animated by a motivation to increase guilt, but rather it's something else. And she quotes Howard Thurman saying that this work is about helping the world get out of prison. It's work of liberation. She says, welcome to the work of liberation. And what she means by that, she says that those who are on the receiving end of racism, it is liberation. And also for those who are caught up in racist ideas, for them too, it is to get out of prison, to be liberated. This work that Jesus was doing, it's nothing less than liberation, setting people free, setting us free so that we can then go and do likewise, the will of God. It's the season of Pentecost right now. That's the season of the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit can hardly be defined. The Spirit can never be contained. But what it can do is it can inhabit us. We can welcome it in. And it can animate our lives, these earthly tents that we have for a time. And with that Spirit, we can be given the power to do God's will. Amen.